Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Mads Johnson, the Chief Product Officer at Calm. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Mads charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working as a software engineer at Nokia before obtaining his MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. After grad school, Mads worked as a consultant at McKinsey and held product leadership roles at LinkedIn and Uber before joining Calm. In this episode, we talk about the impact of AI, the trade-offs between specializing and retaining professional optionality, PM archetypes, and hiring from non-tech backgrounds. Mats has incredible perspectives on professional development and product management and the future of the CPO role, and we'll take a deep dive into how he's built and led high-performing product teams. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Mads, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you both. Pleasure to have you on. Looking forward to talking to you today about product generally and how you've built your career in product. But tell us, what are you up to these days at Calm? These days, I've taken on a new role of leading expansion at Calm. And so sort of beyond product, I think one of the interesting things in this market, sort of taking a glass half full approach, is that I think there's a lot more players open for mergers and acquisitions than there has been in the past, you know, partly also driven by it's not as easy to perform highly as it used to be. And so that's a that's an opportunity for a company like Calm that's still growing and profitable to take a look and see if this is an opportunity for inorganic growth as well as product growth. And so spending quite a bit of time on that. And it's fascinating because on one hand, you know, it's always exciting to learn about new adjacent spaces. On the other, some of these more recent founding rounds are a little bit brutal. For example, I think just raised in health and fitness, probably the latest raise. They were a down round. And, you know, that that's never fun to be around, but it's an interesting reset. Then you, so you mentioned you're, you've moved on to the expansion side. So you're looking at some of these other health and fitness apps, these lifestyle apps that, to your point, maybe have stretched themselves a bit too thin and that could be part of Com's portfolio of products. I think one question is that there's a lot of shared problems between building a habit to be more mindful, whether you meditate or you do something else, or building a habit, getting into fitness or, you know, taking a daily walk. And so if you have an expertise and a brand that helps sort of make some of these things a little bit less mysterious and make them more fun, is it something that could be leveraged for other healthy habits? TBD, if that results in any big M&A, but I think that's that's the question we're asking ourselves these days. Yeah. Interesting stuff. To what extent has Calm or the work that you've been doing impacted, been impacted by suddenly this explosion in AI? Is, is that something that's been on your horizon or has it changed your approach to how you've been thinking about Calm's strategy and approach to product? So it's very top of mind. I think it's been top of mind for a little while. We started discussing this. Actually, I think our our founders have been spending quite a bit of time on on AI for the last year and a half. And I don't know if I see it a lot in market yet, but I do think it's a really interesting set of capabilities. And I think especially the interface part of, you know, having a conversation versus navigating in a UI or finding a way in a library is very interesting, right? The metaphor I like to use is a lot of health and fitness apps and content apps more generally, I think having sort of Netflix, you know, paralysis is a pretty common thing to have just like overwhelm. And so the sort of near term opportunity I see is just in discovery of content and leaning into other paradigms that can help people find what they're looking for and have it be a little bit more of an iterative approach versus like navigate through something and select and click. But I think that's really just the first order implications and the sort of most obvious ones. What's been striking to me is just the speed of which things are happening. You know, it's always hard to tell, like, is a lot of this been, you know, going on in the background and I just haven't paid attention, but it seems like 
every week there's like a major new release and like a major step change in functionality, which just like that meta observation of the pace of how things are evolving is wild and, you know, a little bit frightening and also quite exciting. Yeah, it's hard to keep up, isn't it? And as you say, my impression is it's just 10 years of really hard work and suddenly come to fruition. And of course, the race is on, isn't it? All these big companies now suddenly trying to get a position in the market nature, but it is a very exciting time. Yeah. You know, two weeks ago, it's YC Demo Day for the latest cohort. And I think roughly a third of the companies were built upon like LMMs or like this, these, some of these newer AI capabilities. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing is like a fundamental platform capability. And, you know, ChatGPT is a platform capability or auto GTP, GPT is a platform capability. But we haven't even seen like what all the apps can do on top of that or the second order effects. And so that would be exciting. I don't personally subscribe to it's going to take away every single job, but it's definitely going to change a lot of jobs for sure. I just don't know if it's like super easy to forecast what exactly is going to happen when it's when it's this dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I saw this firsthand as a trader working in London where my job was taken by AI. So you know, one of the very early use cases for AI was algorithmic trading. But now the city of London still employs more people today than it did how many years ago because that gives away my horrible old age. But uh, I think to your point, it's hard to say so I do think at the margin, jobs will disappear, but it's hard to say really what impact it's going to have because you're reading some of these cataclysmic headlines, but actually, even though some jobs will change and disappear, it creates new opportunities, doesn't it? New efficiencies and new markets that people can't ever imagine. It'll be better work, right? Like people said even before that, when ATMs came out, oh, it's going to kill all these jobs in these retail banks, and they just ended up doing more interesting things, so... Yeah. And I think to that point, I mean, so I know you've recently moved, Mads, but as CPO, a little bit about your role. And to that end, how would you as CPO at an organization like that be thinking about these types of market changes? How would you weave them into your role as a CPO? And perhaps if you can expand a little bit on, on your responsibilities, because of course, AI is very nascent. I'm guessing Part of your remit as CPO is to make sure you're abreast of any changes in the market that may have an impact on the business. So perhaps you can give us a sense of like how you would manage that process and adapt your vision and strategy and everything else that you had to do as CPO. Sure. So I think, you know, product management as a function is relatively new. And so I don't know if there's two CPO roles that are identical in the market at the moment, but maybe just by starting to define what do I see as sort of a head of product role, I think fundamentally product is about deciding what to build in what order. And that is grounded in a deep understanding of the customer need. And the customer need might not be sort of explicitly what the customer is asking for. It, it could also be built on an understanding of their behaviors or parallel behaviors. And then there's sort of, you know, fundamentals like sub-functions around that, like product management, which tends to be a bit more around process and execution of that. Design, which tends to be more about the flow, the fabric, the feel, the visuals, and research, which is like really spending a lot of time with customers. I guess what I would say in terms of AI is like fundamentally the problem at hand that you're trying to solve is most likely not changing. For us, it's definitely not changing. That the core challenge for us is that it's really about activating new members that want to be more mindful teaching them and getting them into a habit of being more mindful. It doesn't have to be meditation, it can really be anything. And I think that's the challenge. Generally, I found it's a bit anecdotal, but it's very rare to find people who spent time building a mindfulness habit that says, oh, there's a total waste of time, right? What's much more common is to find people that say, oh, you work for Calm. Yeah, I should be meditating. Or, ah, I downloaded the app three years ago and kind of never got around to using it. And so and when we talk about AI, I think it's important to keep in mind that is a solution or like it's a capability that you can leverage, but it should be to solve the problem, right? And so I think with this new technology, and I would argue there's a bit of this going up on in, in the previous like big hype, tech hype blockchain, where I think the it can quickly end up becoming like a hammer looking for a nail. And so what I would say is like, okay, let's see. In terms of solving this problem of activating people, teaching them how to do these things, helping them do it on a regular basis, how can AI be helpful there, right? And so that's one of the areas where 
when we sort of talked in the beginning around like, how can AI be helpful? I go to discovery, the first user experience, how to make it less daunting, how to find something that resonates with you. But I think over time, you know, depending on what stimuli helps you, the other thing that, that AI has really sort of opened up is this generation of images, of visuals, of movies, of scenes, like you, you can really help people's imagination, right? And are there some of those capabilities that could be interesting to make some of these concepts more, more accessible for people? Yeah. As you say, technology is somewhat transient, isn't it? Or there's a lot of fads in technology. So when you've been socializing some of the vision or articulating the strategy, what have you found has worked or hasn't worked as a product leader within Calm or other organizations? Like what principles do you have you relied upon through that process? Yeah. So I think at its core vision is really storytelling and sort of, it goes back to sort of core tenets around what works well in, in storytelling. And I'm a personal big fan of metaphors. I think like there's nothing like a good metaphor to really, really land a point, right? I think there's lots of metaphors in health and fitness. A classic one is like the sense of like a battery and is your battery drained or is your bucket full or is it not full? And so I think these metaphors around that sort of simplifies like a state of mind and what our tool and what our solve is always quite helpful. And then I think the other thing is often in vision, you sort of have to balance sort of two sort of a little bit competing elements. One is that you need to think as big as possible, and, you know, set a big audacious goal. And, you know, for calm, I suspect that most of the world, no matter where you are in the world, at some point in their life, deals with stress, anxiety, sleeplessness. And so, you know, it's almost like an unbounded space. And you could make an argument that everybody in the world should be using Calm. And by the way, that's not a Calm argument. We would make that argument at Uber, where I was at previously. We would make that argument at LinkedIn, where I was at previously. And so I think you, you have to balance this painting, a picture of like how you're relevant to a large fraction of the world but then also be very real about what the challenges are, right? And in, in health and fitness, the challenge typically is that the intent is quite fleeting. A lot of health and fitness apps, they see spikes in early January, you make your New Year's resolution, that you're gonna start going to the gym. You might even buy that gym membership because that's you know step one at really getting into the habit and come January 10th, the interest has kind of waned and maybe you never went back to the gym again, right? And so. I think you have to sort of both balance the, this is an opportunity that's very large and the core challenge and really try to narrow is that, you know, as people have the intent, how to like keep them engaged, how to keep them, get the, make sure they have a feel, a sense of progression, make sure they feel it's a good use of time. Because by the time a lot of these practices are established as habits, they actually tend to take pretty good care of themselves. And so I found that communicating a way typically through stories that people can relate to. Like I just did around the sort of buying a gym membership on January 1st. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And then sort of painting the broader picture is a good way to, to land a product vision. Yeah. And to that end, what challenges have you found internally when you are trying to sort of balance the ambition of the company and the goals of different stakeholders within the organization and then the sort of market reality, as you say, of consumers who may or may not be excited about the prospect of long-term commitment to health. Like, how do you get gain commitment and build support internally by whatever means necessary? What have you found has worked or hasn't? Yeah, I would say this might not be answering your question precisely, but earlier in my career, like one of my frustrations as a younger product leader was that my manager was either CPO or CO would not sign off on the strategy. And I was sort of stuck in this like purgatory where we weren't quite aligned and I felt like I couldn't move ahead. And I think now being on the other side of that, being the person that often is like the sort of call it final approver of the direction, I would encourage listeners and anyone really to never wait for full alignment. I think a lot of these, when we look at product successes and we sort of look backwards, it's easy to forget about you know, big successes, there's very few people that will say, oh, but originally I was against it. And so I think the best way to build alignment is to get a bit of momentum. 
And you get momentum if you start a little bit before you actually have full alignment. And I think if there are product leaders on my team that did that, it's a little bit of the school of like, ask for forgiveness versus asking for permission. I would welcome that. And it's a bit of a risk. I think full alignment on a hypothetical is almost impossible. Full alignment happens when the success is clear to everybody, which is quite a bit further down execution. Didn't quite answer your question, but I don't know no, if that that's, was still helpful. I think it's fascinating because I think that does get at it. And it's sort of this idea, isn't it, of it's easier to give someone something to react to where there's something tangible than it is to go and, as you say, talk about a hypothetical. Because I, I think we'll get into this a little bit because you obviously are grounded in a consulting background, but that was always the training we had, which was always go to a partner or go to a stakeholder with some notion of actually what the answer is. Don't try and go in and start from scratch because then you do get into those, like you say, those situations of purgatory a little bit. But to that end, when you joined Calm, what did you do having, as you said, moved from having been the person presenting the strategy to the C-level person, when you then became essentially the C-level, what did you do consciously to try and be successful in those first 90 days? How did you try and make a mark so that you could give yourself breathing space to do the other things that wanted to do? Sure. Yeah. So I would say, actually, speaking of consulting, I found my consulting skill set incredibly helpful. And so one mindset I try to take was a little bit similar to a consulting project where, you know, have distinct time to diagnose and you actually spend time digging in and finding the facts. And so I sort of tried just to write for myself as I met people, take notes, try to synthesize at the end of the day what I had learned and then try to come up with a point of view and also just testing the things I had heard with various follow-up. And the other thing I would say is, and this might be more of a function of, I, I don't know if it's a function of being a smaller company or a function of being at a C-level, but comms onboarding of new executives is awesome and probably the best onboarding I've ever had. That said, you do fundamentally have a manager that's very busy and have a very different job, right? Like you're the most senior leader within your function. And so I found it helpful to write my own you know, onboarding plan to write my own, like, hey, this is what I think I should be doing in 90 days, the first 30 days, the first 90 days. And to your point around like coming in with an answer first, putting that down on paper and then going to the CEO and saying, hey, does this look right to you or not? A lot of these core tenants were quite helpful. I had read this book that was called The First 90 Days. I think The First 90 Days makes a point of like not being stressed over deliverables in your first X, Y, C days. And so I'd really taken that to heart. And I like try to do my best this time, defer jumping into a project and like trying to drive outcomes just to have like a metrics win or like a tangible win. I think it might be, it seems to work well, like time will tell if that was the right, right approach. But I try to, my big thing was like, you have a period of time where you're allowed to ask dumb questions where you're allowed to dive in and validate the data. And on your team side, it's also a little bit of a time for mea culpa, right? Like you can say, hey, I did this thing. Actually, I don't agree with it, but that was the previous leadership, so on and so forth. And so I just find that like that time is so much better spent building the most honest assessment you can of the situation versus trying to sort of drive a quick win. Because as you as you go on further, you become complicit in it. It's kind of, you, it's nobody else's problem. It's definitely yours. And it actually becomes very difficult to truth seek as an executive because it's you don't necessarily have the same mea culpa to, like mechanism with the employees once, once you've been in it for a while. You mentioned something, and I don't want to let it go before kind of following up on it. I was struck by you said that it had you had like a gold standard onboarding process. It's kind of an aside for those of us who are thinking about our own onboarding processes at our organization. What makes it gold standard, or what you know, you've been at a couple, you know, wide uh, companies that have I assume thought about this pretty deeply. What made it end up? Yeah, so this is going to be super unstructured, but I rattle off a list. One was that it started way before my first day at the job. And so I actually had time with various executives, with the founders, well ahead of my first start date. So that was quite helpful. The second thing is like when I started, my first couple of weeks were already structured. So I had an assigned executive assistant. It happens to be the same as the CEOs at the time. And so, you know, 
I found myself in the past showing up the first day at a job and I can imagine, especially in a virtual world, you would just sit like what I'm supposed to do at this point. And so I had like a very well-structured first couple of weeks because like the meetings were already set up. It was like quite clean meet and greet. I would say in terms of just like getting on board, Calm has a really high documentation standard. I came in, Calm is the smallest company I've ever worked for. And I came in actually expecting the opposites. But for some reason, we're quite good at documenting. We've documented all our past experiments. What were the learnings? We've documented, generally speaking, like our plans every year. And so because I got this package of sort of structured information that was captured combined with like already structured time with all the executives in like my team and peers and whatnot, it just, it was like a very efficient setup. It did come across like quite opinionated, like meaning it's not like I came in and sort of said, oh, I want to meet with so and so and so like that was already sort of set up for me. But I think I just found that to be quite efficient. And it also sort of aligned quite well with the goal I had at the time, which was, okay, let's try to defer getting in the weeds and like spend this time just to like understand the situation. It feels like we could do a separate podcast on on, on mental health, your industry and, and, and writing things down is sort of a, is, a, is an aside. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people have different personalities, but it, at least as a consumer, it's always helpful when other people have written stuff down. Yeah. It's, I feel like the best companies, I mean, I'd add Uber, speak to Uber. They were very big on documentation where they have read first round article about how they realized it's critical for all aspects of operations. I feel like the best organizations do, but you mentioned something mad about in that first 90 days, assessing the team. So rather than just, as you say, diving in and giving an opinion where perhaps you're still learning about the industry or still learning about how or why they've been doing things, what criteria were you using to assess the team? How, what lens would you apply to make an evaluation of the areas that you were responsible for? Yeah. So I think there's two dimensions. So the first dimension is just like, what are the capabilities of this person? And then the second dimension is like, what is their mindset specifically? Are they in it or are they out? And just to start with the latter, I think it's very common when you come in as an executive, there are somebody on the existing team that were you sort of took their job or the job they aspire to, right? Like you're kind of capping other people's ambition. And I think, especially in companies that been through a lot of change. This is less at Calm, but happened more at Uber. I think after some duration of period of time, like people have like a maximum threshold of the organizational changes they can that they can live with. And like sometimes you coming in, you're just like their seventh or eighth or like reorg. And that definitely happened quite a bit at Uber, for example, to some extent also at previous tech companies I was at. And so it's not necessarily related to you, but just identifying, okay, is this person fully in? Is this person fully out? Or are they a fence sitter? And I think there on the dimensions is to get the high performing fence sitters on your side, right? Like the people that are in, they're in. The people that are out, help them move on, be compassionate about it, but also don't try to waste a lot of time trying to save the people that are out. It might be structural. It, like it might just be a journey thing of th- this is like kind of the last organizational change that that sort of breaks the neck. On the capability side, I think the one watch out I would have is people's performance is a combination of their own effort and you know capabilities, but it's also the situation they're in. And so I try to defer judgment quite a lot on you know what did people ship, what are the exact work projects products, because it's very hard to assess, at least in product, they might've been through a bunch of product reviews. They got a bunch of feedback I don't agree with, and they're sort of working within the circumstances. So on the capability side, what I check more for is just like clarity of thought, critical thinking, sort of creativity, those kind of skill sets versus like the history they've been through, because it's not fully dependent on a lot of people in product in particular, I would say you often ship quicker by making a lot of compromises. And I just want to be careful judging people on the compromises they made in order to be able to ship. On the kind of distinction between, I guess, call it attitude in or out versus performance and maybe some context around performance. Do you have a good razor on how you think about whether someone's in or out based on maybe the context and potentially whether they're in the wrong seat when you're thinking about team? 
advice for other people who are thinking about similar kinds of team building and team org stuff? Yeah. So, well, let me answer it this way. I think if you are a person and you're getting a new manager, I would encourage you to be direct. I think people would be shocked. I was initially shocked, even in previous roles, of how many people would be very forward about literally saying, hey, this is it for me. I'm probably on my way out or this is, this is, I'm super excited you're here and I'm all in. And so a large fraction of people are being very explicit. I would say that there's a school of thought. And I think I would encourage people to enlist their new manager in their journey to the extent possible, to the extent they feel comfortable with that. I think in terms of measuring otherwise, I think you could just sort of tell it based on the level of effort and energy that goes into things, starting with like their willingness and openness on ramping you are you a little bit like a like welcoming help or are you a little bit like a something that needs to be boxed out and kept away and, and i think it's quite easy to assess that as an incoming manager and so if you get a new manager and you're sort of questioning yourself oh should i send these people should i send my new manager a note like i don't want to be like super forward or should i escalate my problems right away because I don't want this person to like come on board and not, you know, like think that there's a bunch of problems. I would just encourage you to be more expressive and do those things sooner than later, because I see that as a signal of people being in and wanting to get to work as quickly as possible. People that are out tend to be very quiet, very hard to get to, and don't share a lot. Do you think your experience in consulting has helped you find that philosophy because i feel like consulting you know the, the in and out the up and out approach has meant that there's actually a lot of transparency and honesty about who will continue to rise through the ranks and they're very supportive of people who get moved out and so i think perhaps do you think having been a consultant you're much more open to this idea of recognizing that not everyone is suited for an organization or a particular role or a particular level and you can be much more constructive about it because in my experience i've I've seen that work, but I've also experienced myself where culture doesn't exist, to be honest, about your preference. When people have, when I've taken over people, you know, there's not that openness or recognition that you can be that way sometimes. And I would love your perspective on to what extent your experience of McKinsey has shaped your philosophy today, or is that something you've experienced previously at Nokia and in other roles as well? Right. So, so I subscribe to it. I think that there's definitely a couple of macro efforts. One is at McKinsey, as you said, and I think any consulting company actually, it's a very acknowledged approach and it's understood that the vast majority of people, they will only be at the company for a short amount of period of time. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's encouraged and sort of part of the system. I would say at the technology companies I've been at as well, especially LinkedIn, there's this concept of what is your next play? And I think LinkedIn prides itself on in the interview process, asking people, hey, after this job, like what are, like what's your next job that you plan to get? And so it's a very similar mindset. And so I think I have been fortunate to be in, in companies that welcome that quite a bit. But the big caveat is that I was in all these companies during boom times, meaning if you moved on, like it wasn't in 2020 or 2019, it wasn't that high risk of a move quitting a tech job. It was quite relatively easy for many people to find another job. I think now when the labor market is getting a little bit tighter and there's not as many jobs to job seekers, that the culture dynamics might change. And I, you know, I think that's also part of it with McKinsey was that like leaving McKinsey, there's no stigma associated with it. It's not necessarily detrimental to your career anything of that nature, I think now people might feel that way because they're nervous about their ability to find their next job. And that might be the bigger influencer on this culture than any specific company. Yeah, that's interesting. You alluded to this a little bit, you know, during that 90 days when you're assessing, generally speaking, not just within the first 90 days, how have you thought about building high performance teams in product? What are the qualities that you've looked for putting together your senior team members or the more junior members of the product organization? So again, I think that there's two elements to performance. There's the individual's performance and there's the system they're in the, and the circumstances, right? And the reality is like outside of hiring and coaching, the short-term levers are often more around the systems. And like the one systems thing that you have to do is setting clear expectations. I have 
consistently found teams that I've come in, not to like pin it on a specific company, because I think it's consistent through all the companies I've been at, where the definition of what good looks like is actually not defined. It's, it's sort of assumed. There's no clear performance evaluation. There's no clear career trajectory. There's none of that. And so I think that's a system thing you need to have in order. And it starts with saying what like you expect of good performance. And it can sometimes feel hard to do, especially when you're new, because what do I know? Like, I don't, I barely understand this company. I just showed up. And then now I sort of come down from the mountain and say, oh, the bar is here. But you have to do it. And not doing it is actually not fair to the team. So there's a bunch of systems th things. On the individuals, it depends a little bit by function. But if you look at, for example, product management, I think the core of it is like a, a highly organized sort of high charging person. Like there's a lot of ambiguity in the role. There's a lot of things. It's actually, it tends to be quite difficult to ship product. There's a lot of cross-functional partners. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. And so somebody who's like quite organized and can sort of make up a system and a process that drives progress when there is none and recognizing when there is none, I think it's like the bare bones foundational capability for any PM to have, right? And I would say in a junior PM's capability, that that is like often the core of the job is to really just like nail the execution, just being running like a very tight ship and make sure decisions are made fast, follow-ups happens, so on and so forth. As you get more senior, I think the values I tend to appreciate more are more around creativity and critical thinking. I think on creativity, at the end of the day, yes, you can copy a bunch of best practices. You can look at analogies, but like, I think where product really comes to life and where it's fun and magical is when people have creative ideas on how can some of these new technology capabilities solve this core user problem. And I think even the creativity shows up in when good PMs and senior PMs interact with stakeholders, how they sort of uncover what the real problem is because the stakeholder might not be super forward about that. And then I think just in terms of critical thinking, just really pushing for like, hey, why are things the way they are? Why are we seeing this in the data? What's really happening? Key marker of critical thinking for me is if a PM says like, oh, the, our competition is doing X, Y, and C is because they're like not thoughtful or they're idiots or whatever. That, that's usually not what's happening. What's happening is that we haven't thought about it enough to realize what it is that they're doing that is typically pretty smart. And so I would look at somebody who has those skill sets as well. Notice that like all the skill sets I'm sort of describing are more sort of core capabilities. What do you, what, maybe what's the way to describe it? Like more like intrinsic, like intrinsic like capabilities that you have. The soft skills, essentially. Yeah, soft skills. I tend to steer... I know it gets mentioned soft skills, right? Yeah, so I think soft skills is the better word. It, I tend to shy away from these like more hard skill definitions such as, oh, technical understanding, being a software engineer, having been in product for a decade or what have you. Because while those skills help you, they are rarely what like distinguishes like a great PM from a good PM. They're kind of table stakes and everyone has gaps, right? The engineer that became a PM might not have a lot of marketing or sales experience. The product marketer that became a PM might not have the deepest technical understanding. And so there's always some gaps you're working on and some fundamental understandings that you need to have. But fundamentally, what ends up delivering great products are these like core capabilities around deep critical thinking about what's the problem to solve, creative solutions, and just like hardcore executing to, to deliver it faster than your competitors. It's almost like adaptive skills, really. Like what, what will evolve as your role evolves, as the product evolves. One of the things that really struck me, Matt, when we were talking about this before, you know, you mentioned the phrase used, I think, to kind of really talk about what you just mentioned was, you know, asking second order questions about not just that second order insight around competitive intelligence, for example. For ambitious listeners who are interested in improving on this, how can we get better at asking better second order questions. Any tips or frameworks you have that you you give to peers and to reports? No, that's a good question. I don't know if I have any good tips. I think, I guess what I would say is I think a lot of this comes with practice. And so trying, okay, 
I guess what I would say is, for me, the way I built the skill set was that actually in consulting, and so to some degree also in business school, you very rapidly have to learn not super deep knowledge, but like a fairly core set of knowledges in a lot of new domains. And you have to sort of build the understanding. And in order to learn things really quickly, you need to look for patterns a little bit around like, oh, there's like certain tenants around like operations theory that also apply in a bunch of other stuff. Like it also applies in software engineering, for example. And so I think having this breadth of experiences and having a lot of at-bats is quite helpful. If you're looking more for like things to sort of do on your own and read, I don't know. I guess like I would say, I do think a lot of these strategic blocks, for instance, my classmate Ben Thompson's block is quite good at Stratechery is quite good at decomposing why are some of the things happening. For example, because he's based out of Taiwan, he's spending a lot of time on the chips market, something that I wouldn't think about at all. And a lot of how geopolitics and chip manufacturing is actually tied together. And so I think just opening your eyes on like, oh, some of these things, like why do they work the way they do? And having the curiosity to actually like spend the time reading that or better yet sign up for special projects at your job. So where you can sort of push your push the need for you to become an expert in a new area. That's not to say that's one way of doing it or two ways of doing it. There's probably others. I don't know if there's like a off the shelf, like class or book on it that I would, that, that I have like top of mind. Definition of good when assessing product organization and product operations, what are the principles that you define as good. So when you're thinking about how the team should be set up, what are the specifics of that and how do you communicate that to the team? Yeah. So I think there's sort of the general description of like, hey, these are the core capabilities. And I think in a perfect world, you also have examples, right? So when you say like, hey, I want to see analysis of the problem. I want If we're going to make a material engineering investment in X, we need to have you know, this level of belief. And here's an example of what built this level of X. Or, hey, the definition of running a good Scrum team or development team is that you do these four things and like, here's a pod that's doing it really well. And like, here's their structure. Or like, hey, here's, here's like a really good customer insight summary. And so I, I found that like giving folks a bit of the framework of like, what is the elements and in products, there is this essay written that's called Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager. It's like a page and a half. I think it's either Mark Andreessen or Horowitz, one, one of the two that wrote it, Yeah, which I think talks to the core tenets around execution, communication, so on and so forth. And then within a company setting, you need to point to something specific, like an actual artifact that is at that, that, is at that bar. And if that doesn't exist, then you personally have to lean in with a PM make it together, and then now you have it for everybody else. To that end, you mentioned when you put your teams together, certain product archetypes with core skills. I'd love you to sort of expand on that. Yes. So at Uber, I was introduced to this concept of product archetypes. And so we used sort of domain archetypes. So there's five archetypes. There's a product leader that does growth work. There's a product leader that does experience work. There's a product leader that does sort of core platform work, so on and so forth. And I found those archetypes to be quite helpful because I think product management is really a very wide capability. And it's very different being an internal platform product manager versus being a enterprise product manager. For example, an enterprise product manager or B2B product manager has a sales team, usually a quite aggressive sales leader that will yell at them for all the features that are missing so for them to make their deals versus an growth PM rarely talks to a customer, more looks at sort of A-B tests at scale, right? And so I just think that like these jobs are actually quite different inside of the product management capability. So I would say the one of the biggest levers of success for us has just been to make sure that, for example, within our growth team, we have people with growth experience and that fits like the growth archetype, which means that they're typically more analytical, quasi very comfortable with data science. They tend to be a bit more hacky, a bit more trial and error versus building sort of the perfect and so on in our pods. And 
from a hiring perspective, at least traditionally, it's been very difficult to hire PMs. I think it still is. My, my guess is that there's a lot more demand than there is a supply out there. And so the archetypes are also quite helpful in hiring where, you know, many folks don't haven't been a PM their entire career, right? They've been something else very often. And so if you're looking, for instance, a growth PM, having been a consultant or having been in business operations or product analytics is just as helpful experience to have as being a growth PM. And so you can sort of squint and look at that experience when you hire. And similarly for an experienced PM or a consumer PM, having been a designer or a user researcher is quite helpful and so on. In, in, in enterprise or B2B PMs, having been a PMM, like a product marketing manager, it is a very helpful skill set because you've often been the interface between sales and product in your previous role. And so the archetypes are both helpful in finding, putting people in the right roles, but it's also helpful for hiring overall when you need to look at people's broader experience beyond their product management experience. I love the the approach you take to think about kind of people from non-traditional backgrounds and where they might slot in in the spectrum of PM roles. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, either from the perspective of someone hiring or from a lot of our listeners or maybe coming from tech and product in particular, can you talk about cases where maybe hiring non-traditional backgrounds not work out? Any patterns you've seen there that would be useful to find for career switchers or people managers were considering career switchers? Yeah, I think it's difficult to jump into a line management of product management without having been a product manager yourself. And, you know, that sounds very basic, but the implications are a little bit far reaching because traditionally to become more and more senior in, in many product organizations, being an individual contributor doesn't allow you to be as senior as a manager of PMs. It's changing a little bit, but generally speaking, Typically, to be a director of product, in most companies, you need to manage other PMs. And so what that means is, like, as a career switcher, often you have to be comfortable going in as an IC. And I think that can be that that can feel like a setback. You might be a very senior marketeer, a very senior business operations expert. And so you have to make up with yourself if you want to make that transition. And then I would... The other thing I would say is like, rather than there's like many ways that, that things can go wrong, but like the thing that can go right is like, look at the adjacent role and look as, for as many adjacencies as possible. And so what I mean by that is, for instance, at LinkedIn, you know, a lot of LinkedIn orients around hiring and job seeking is like still kind of the fundamentally core of the, the product. And so while you might not have PM experience, if you have been a recruiter or if you've worked in the hiring marketplace somewhere, actually like uh, trying to apply to a LinkedIn or a Workday or somewhere in HR where like you can stand on, hey, at least I understand the customer really well because I used to be a customer, it is quite helpful. And so when you switch and you make the career switch, note that it's very difficult to come in as a line manager of other PMs. It's not impossible, but it's just a little bit of an uphill hat battle. So I wouldn't put that as a hard requirement. And then the other thing, try not to like change as many, like try to keep as few variables as different, like different as possible. And so if you are in business operations, try to go for growth roles. If you are a designer, try to go for experience roles. If you are in IT, try to go for product platform roles, right? So, so lean into the capabilities you have and recognize that everyone has gaps. Even the person that has been, you know, started their career as an APM, as a bit of product manager their entire life, they also have gaps, right? They don't have your marketing experience or they don't have your analytics experience. And so lean into the strengths you have and the strengths you have could be as simple as I am the customer we're building a product for. It's really interesting you mentioned that that breadth of skills or how you tailor your approach depending on your background. But you shared with us a philosophy, which I think you said has evolved from thinking you know, increasingly that specialization is important versus being a generalist. Can you expand upon that a little bit? And what changed your thinking over the years as you've moved through your career? Yes. So I think business school of all places, Kellogg, sort of pounded into me that optionality was great. And going into consulting felt like the ultimate optionality. And in fact, it felt a little bit like a cheat code because 
maybe I could like become more senior or fast track my career by dealing with strategic issues sooner or, or what have you. And so I think early in my career, especially in business school and especially in consulting, I was really solving for optionality and it felt very valuable. And part of it was also that I could sort of defer a choice, right? Like, oh, I don't know, like brand marketing seems interesting. Product management seems interesting. Analytics, data science seems interesting. And, but I don't have to make that choice yet. And even that was valuable in like deferring growing up. I think the thing I've come to realize, especially now that I've also hired a lot of people is that careers are like, you know, you can say that careers are not linear and then you can sort of see people's careers and recognize that they're not linear. And it's sometimes a little bit hard to see because people tailor their resume, they tailor LinkedIn to look like quite structured and sort of growing, right? And so the card decks is a little bit stacked against like seeing zigzaggy careers. But when you talk to people, and you'll probably uncover this in this podcast series as well. You realize like how haphazard and all over the place people's career is functionally, geographically. Oh, I, and then I met my wife and she was in here and then we moved over there and I did something totally different. Right. I think I found that to be very common a little bit later in life versus in business school where people tended to have one job, then they went to business school and then they, you know, often solve for, for optionality. And so with that understanding that careers are not linear at all, I think I've come to recognize that most people do pretty big, they have pretty big swings in their careers. And so you can be specialized in many things. I think actually Uden is a perfect example where you specialized as a trader. It's like a very like specific niche skill set. Then you were a consultant is totally different skill set, probably talk to a lot more humans than computers, but there's actually a value in versus being like this sort of broad, shallow, oh, I have a lot of optionality. I know many things about many things. You can now say, oh, I know a lot, but it's about very different things. And in my career, I've actually been able to switch over. And I found this might be myself like justifying a bit, but like there's a lot of patterns and a lot of core skill sets that still apply. And so in a bit of the school of like, do as I say, not as I did, I wouldn't be so shy about specializing because you still have optionality. You can choose to specialize in something else. And when you look at people's careers over the long term, they tend to do that a lot. Like this direct career, I think is quite rare. And I think there's a lot of value to it. And so I wouldn't be afraid of specialization. I wouldn't Think of it as like, this is the thing you have to do with the rest of your life. And I find very consistently that it, people who have specialized in many things and gone deep in a few things have like a really valuable skill set. You mentioned a while back that, you know, kind of being stuck on the menu page with, you know, streaming media. And it feels like that's the equivalent of the kind of optionalities overrated, you know, fallacy that maybe... A lot of us who started in consulting can kind of fall into. Do you think it's because it injects some hesitancy into kind of the classic startup or design thinking mentality around bias for action? Do you think that's part of it? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is definitely that it's a safe choice. Like nobody's ever going to bust you for go to CG or McKinsey or Bain, at least not amongst your peer group at business school. By the way, this might have changed. This was definitely not the case in 2011 when I graduated. And so I think part of it is like, risk adversity, which I think, ironically, at least I can speak for myself, like I think in business school and in consultant, I was very risk averse. I would never have admitted to that, but I definitely was. I think that's part of it and the core of it. It's a safe choice to go for a high prestige, high optionality job. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I hear you when you say there's a lot of value in specialization, and I've seen this in finance, and I've seen this in other fields as well. But I also think what perhaps gives you an edge at senior levels, marketing and product, is actually diversity of experience. Because if you draw upon ways of looking at things, if you've experienced different industries or different functions, you can bring a different lens that does give you perhaps not just a competitive advantage professionally with your career, but also for the company in those experiences and i think it's a question of when should you it's always like design thinking when should you flare and when should you focus and there are times i think professionally where it's good to be broad so as we all were as consultants post business school you're doing what i call like the finishing school for business school where you're getting education around 
true strategy, true operations, and what it's like to work in different industries. And then to your point, we all kind of left that safety of the sort of breadth of opportunity and you begin to focus and specialize in different functional areas or different industries, which is when you can really unlock some value, but then the market changes. So again, you need to become a bit more regeneralist and exercise different skill sets. And I think understanding when to capitalize on those more generalist moments versus being a specialist, I think is a really important facet of managing a career. I also think that, so I agree. Yes, yes. And I would say even the motion of starting something new, learning a new field, starting a little bit from scratch, while I can appreciate it's painful and it might be a little bit anxiety-inducing if you're very career-oriented, it feels like you're taking a step down on the career ladder. I think it's a really great skill set to build. And I think, yeah, having that, even just building expertise in a diversity of areas is a helpful skill as an executive because often as you get promoted up, you end up managing functions that you have never worked in, right? So for example, when I became CPO at Com, I started managing designers. I've worked very closely with designers for many years, but I've never had designers reporting to me and I'm not a good designer. And I don't, it's, I don't, it's not something where I could feel like, oh, I could do the job if everything else fails. And so having, I think both being having been humbled a bit in like other domains is helpful. And also just like being able to sort of build up a level of comfort with like a new area quickly, I think is sort of good meta skills that you get in the process as well. I think this comes back a little bit to what you were saying about soft skills, because we talked about at the start AI, but AI is just another technology and there'll be other technologies in the future. And I think to that point, it's there are always challenges that you have to adapt to and to that extent, you've got to re-specialize in something new. So there's that having that generalist ability to adapt to new industries, new drivers, new levers is really important. But then you again, you've got to become a specialist in something because that's where the value is at. And I think that's that core soft skill that you mentioned earlier on that you look for in your senior leaders. Right. Right. Exactly. So then, I mean, as you've moved from being more junior in your career to now much more senior, how have you thought about ingraining some of those core product skills, how have you managed your team to be successful to encourage accountability and transparency so that you can be successful as an organization? So that's a good question. And again, I would I would caveat this by saying I think your performance and your succession through the your career is what you do and the circumstances around you. And I do think if I were to attribute like where I've gotten to where I am today, a lot of it is luck, circumstance, the right opportunity. Part of it is like having been part of companies that have grown very fast and fast growing companies provides more opportunity. And so I don't know, frankly, I don't feel like I perfected any of the jobs on the way. At the time, it all felt very haphazard, sort of there are good days and bad days. And so maybe the meta concepts I would bring is just like, experiment, don't spend too much time deliberating, oh, what could you do? try something out. There are very few things that are not reversible. And so if you think that like, oh, we need to have this accountability metric or we need to change X, Y, and C, try it out. And the people that work with you, tell them that it's an experiment. Hey, we're going to commit to trying this for a month. And if it's a terrible idea, let's do something else. And then the other thing is have some moments of forced reflection. So I think part of like making sure that your experiments get better over time is that you also spend a bit of time thinking through like, okay, did this work? Did this actually like, I was trying to solve problem X, like, you know, my team struggled with aligning with cross-functional partners or whatever. And therefore I set in motion that we all meet monthly and try to share what we're all doing. And, you know, maybe that ended up being a waste of time, but you have to like, to sort of clean up in the debt of your experiments, you have to like have moments of forced reflection fairly often, I'd say, for me, like having like at least doing it at least like once a month, just like taking a deep breath and figuring out, okay, even just simple things like, hey, the big problem that was a big problem a month ago, is that actually still my big problem? Like, is it even worthwhile working on at this point? I think those are more of the meta skills. But I think if you were to ask me in any of these jobs, even the job I have now, I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, I have all these like great systems. It's a little bit like, hanging on, making the days better and sort of get getting decent outcomes on the way. 
And then one last thing, I have to say this just as I talk about experiments, is that you're, you cannot treat your team as like a consumer A-B testing cohort, right? Your team can only, kind of like I said in the beginning, that they're, you know, I think everybody has a number of org changes that they are willing to deal with. Some people have a very low number. Some people have a very high number. I think the same thing goes for change. For a lot of people, change even good change, things that you might think benefits them or they, upon reflection, would realize benefits them are anxiety-inducing. And so you can't do too many experiments, but try to experiment your way through like the core problems. And the last thing I would say is like the experiments don't have to be completely blue sky, right? Like there's a lot of good principles written already. Like for instance, when it comes to operating there's this book by Andy Grove called High Output Management that's pretty good. He has a lot of good ideas. It's also where this concept around OKRs has come, came from originally, Intel. There's a guy, Shishio Morocho, who's the CEO of a company called Kodai. He's written a quite extensive document on how they ran product operations at YouTube. And so I think your experiments can simply just be trying to steal from the best and make sure it works in the context that you have. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And it actually leads into the next one, which I think is linked to some degree, because you talked about the role of incentives when building culture and the importance of that. I'd love you to talk a little bit about that as you are building team culture. How do you make sure those incentives are right, given what you're trying to achieve at an individual level, as a team, and then as a company? Yeah. So I think usually when people say incentives, people tend to go to like their compensation and the reality is that, at least in my experience, having your compensation tied to real metrics is actually fairly rare in engineering, in product, in design. It's common in sales, potentially in growth, but the incentives, they're not necessarily like hard incentives, dollar incentives. I haven't found in the tech companies I've been at. And so it's more like making sure that the things you want to, you celebrate the things that you want to celebrate. You highlight the behaviors you want highlighted. It sounds very generic as I'm saying. I guess my first point is I would look at incentives in a little bit broader lens than just compensation because the reality is for most of the functions I'm associated with, it's a bit of a subjective exercise what your performance rating is, I would argue. And so it comes more down to people's trajectory and their visibility. Who do you promote? You make it clear why people are promoted. Like, what do you elevate? An elevation could be as simple as like, who gets to present to the CEO? Who gets to draw the pen on a certain strategy? And are you making sure that the people that you put in those trusted roles are showcasing the skills and the attitudes you want to see? And so I guess that's what I would say there. It's more around these softer things. And the last thing I would say is like, definitely. It, as part of your check-ins with your team, you should have a pretty explicit performance conversation around like, hey, what are you solving for and what would you like? I think one of the mistakes I made earlier in career was thinking that everybody wanted the same thing that I wanted, which at the time was fast promotions and exposure to the CEO and being told that you're super smart. But people have, this is not earth shattering at all, but people have many different incentives and motivations, including motivations outside of work. And so just ask people and then make sure to fulfill the needs of your highest performing people first, whatever they might be, even if it's at a cost of your own visibility, if it's at a cost of like exactly how you want a strategy or whatever, you have to let loose and lose the reins and give the people that are performing well as much slack as they can, as they want and as they can handle. You mentioned something else as well in relation to that, which was the dangers of narrow or selfish thinking and on the flip side, empowerment and accountability. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage to that or how you kind of try and keep those things in check where necessary? Yeah, so I think I do believe in inspection. And I think there's quite a few articles. My Our previous CTO at Com, Will Larson, he has an amazing blog and he writes around inspection. And he has a point which I agree with, which is if you don't inspect work as a leader, you are failing at your job, right? It's very questionable what your value add is at that point. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with inspection. And so I think when one place where I've seen teams go a little bit awry is, oh, you need to empower me. And empower mean, empowerment means the same as stay away. Or alternatively, people will say, oh, just tell me what metric to hit 
and you know, let me work out how I hit it. And in six months, we'll see how I'm going to hit it or not. That does not work for me. And we need to have like an explicit understanding that I'm going to inspect your work there because, and it's not necessarily because people are failing at their work. Even the setup is different, right? Typically, your manager has more visibility. Your manager has more context. Other people on the team might have more history. So like the shared inspection and sort of testing it together actually leads to better outcomes, which is what all of this is about, right? It's about the best outcomes. And so I think I do believe in empowered teams. I want to make sure that people have space to, high performers have space to unfold their creativity, but it doesn't mean go it alone. One concept we have in product is called product reviews. I think all the companies I've been at have had them. It's typically a weekly affair. They are uh, very consistently hated by ICPMs. They're terrible because you just get a bunch of feedback all over the place. It's a little bit hard to discern what the next steps are. And they are very much loved by the executive team because it's one of the few times they get a lot of deep visibility into what's going on. And I think they are a healthy organizational metric to have, even though they don't feel great in the moment. And the core premise is your work is going to be inspected and provided and feedback is going to provide be provided as part of building this, no matter how perf- high performing or empowered you are. Matt, you mentioned before, you've got a point of view on the future of the CPO role, the head of product. Can you expound a little bit on, on your point of view on this? Oh, sure. Yes. So we talked about this earlier. So I think within the archetypes I described earlier, consumer B2B platform, I think the future of, in particular, the consumer product leader and like CPO of a consumer tech company, my a little bit of hot take is I don't think that's a role we're going to see 10 years from now. I think what we'll see is general managers that own the entire business. And part of that business is product. And part of the reason is I've seen, not a comp, but at a few of the companies I'm advising, a little bit of a disconnect between consumer product management, where it sort of gets very in the weeds of A-B testing and like very narrow metrics that yield a better product experience, but aren't necessarily yielding commercial results. And I really think this like disconnect between the commercial outcomes and product. And I think you could argue that there are pockets at Uber where that was happening as well, are deeply problematic. And so I think the only way to solve this and what I think quite a few high profile companies have done recently is simply just to get rid of the CPO role and have GMs that also own product. And my sense is that is the direction it's going to go for consumer product roles moving forward. Well, let's kick into our rapid fire questions as we here to kick off what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader ability to respond positively to change and embrace change roll with the punches don't take anything personal what would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now stress stress less about it's all going to work out what don't most people understand about the cpo role I think a common misnomer is that it's the CEO of the product, and I think that's wrong. I think the reality of what makes the head of product very tricky is that you are accountable, but you don't have full authority. For example, engineering typically reports up to a functional engineering leader called the CTO. And so it's not like being CEO. And I'm not even sure that CPO is a great CEO school. And so I would separate for people that want to get into product, I would separate, is this like a means to an end to become a CEO? Or is this because you like to build things? And if it's the former, there are many other paths than product, probably easier paths than product to to become a business leader. One thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not? I pride myself on still having a growth mindset. I do believe that my success is mostly luck and circumstance. I truly believe that. I think uh, sometimes when I meet people that are very successful, they rationalize the success based on the actions they took. And I question that is, I think that's not correct. If you're up for this, we have kind of one one bonus question we've been kicking around and feel free to punt if, because we've sprung this on you. What's one kind of under the radar networking hack that you'd like to use um, here for, or... Um, Maybe one thing I could say that's very tech relevant is that most people know that the VCs have investing partners that you know find the next inve- investors. 
They also have, the large VCs also have talent partners that help companies that both their portfolio and frankly also much broader for the bigger VCs staff their companies. And so I think getting familiar with the functional VC talent partners is a massive, is a massive force multiplier because at least within tech, those are quite well connected and quite up to speed, even on roles that are not necessarily within their portfolio. So you mentioned a couple of things. What content, whether it's a blog book or podcast, do you enjoy reading or listening to? And would you want to share with our listeners? Sure. So I have a real airport bookstore addiction, which is probably also visible on the bookcase behind me. And so I'm a big believer in old-fashioned books. I'd say two Three, three core books I've really enjoyed reading is How to Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. It's quite good just in terms of what how to potentially orient your values. It resonates with me quite well. On the more sort of how to work, I think Deep Work by Cal Newport is an amazing read and I think is ever becoming more and more relevant the more information we get in our diet every day. And then finally, just from a fundamental operations efficiency, I do think High Output Management by, by Andy Grove book I mentioned earlier, it's a super small read, is very high calorie, and just like a really foundational book that's been like incredibly helpful for me. Blog posts, more generally, I follow a lot of them. I follow, you know, our Kellogg, a lot of Ben's Ben's posts a lot, but I think the, I enjoy the books that sort of expand more, more on some of the topics. People want to get in touch with you, share any contact details, whether that's social, maybe you've got a website, email. Yes, for sure. So always open for conversations, especially if you're in the Bay Area. Obviously, that's not a prerequisite at all. I can be reached at, at massjohnson.com. So it's M-A-D-S-J-O-H-N-S-E-N.com. Currently links to my LinkedIn profile. I have a plan to get it to my publishings soon. But if you go there, you can always find my latest contact information. And yeah, don't be shy to reach out. Perfect. Well, Mads, thank you so much for joining us. It's been yeah. great having you on. And, it's been uh, a gold mine. Thank you. Feel very much smarter. Thank yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.